Hello and welcome to Out Loud. I'm your host, Greg Thompson. Today on the show, we have Damien Domenac. Damien is originally from Peru and grew up in Southern California, raised in the Foursquare Evangelical Faith Tradition. He eventually found himself in Nashville for his Master's of Divinity at Vanderbilt Divinity School, concentrating in Latin American studies, religion and the arts, as well as the Carpenter Program for Gender and Sexuality Studies. Damien is a founding member of the Audre Lorde Project's Trans Justice in New York City, and collectively organized the first ever Trans Day of Action for Social and Economic Justice in New York City. Damien has also worked in the hospitality industry for 15 years from the Gramercy Park Hotel restaurant in New York to a spot I'd love to visit called Pinewood Social right here in Nashville. Damien identifies as queer, and his gender pronouns are he, him, his. As our conversation unfolded, Damien described a hope-filled sense of faith from his earliest memories as a child through today, with a focus on spirituality and embodiment. He reflects on his Afro-Peruvian heritage, as well as embodied memory, which has become the focus of his studies of Peruvian culture and how dance has been a form of worship for centuries and continues to be today. Before we dive in, I just want to take a moment to say thank you to our Patreon supporters who are helping finance the production of this season. If you like what you hear, become a patron. At just $15 a month, you can get exclusive access to unedited episodes of the show, just like this one. And now, let's hear from Damien Domenac. So, um, thanks for coming on the show, Damien. I'm excited to chat. Yes. Um, what I want to start with is a question that I've usually started with um, with folks is kind of just talking about um, broadly speaking your your identity um, and so you identify as queer which I always like to make sure we kind of break down terminology right out the gate and that being queer means that you're you're fluid as far as who you're attracted to but I'm curious what does being queer mean to you in a definitional sense but also just more in like what does it mean to you personally, culturally, day to day? Totally. I get that. Yeah. Um, so queer identity to me. So I basically am, I came out in like late 90s. And in the late 90s, queer was a generally a new term that we were owning, we were reclaiming. And that meant, um, that meant owning the spectrum of what it is to be LGBTQI. Those LGBT was around, QI wasn't really included. And so creating an inclusive name to, to call our sexuality because we're not just gonna be binary about our sexuality when we're not, right? Mm-hmm. And so there was at the time when I, when I was struggling with the term lesbian or gay because lesbians at the time called themselves gay, mm. right? And so there's this interchange of names because it wasn't a language, right? And so queer came along and it spoke to the fact that I'm non-binary sexually, right? And so for me, I was like, well, is that bi? But bi was such a, it was, it's such a, then and now it's such a controversial term, mm-hmm. name and all kinds of things. I mean, people are reclaiming that every day with bipan fluid. I. I consider myself queer and bipan fluid because to me those are in my my experience those work for me. Can you explain the difference between the two of those for folks that yeah. may not know? Um bipan fluid 
in my experience, what I understand as far as what it is, is also being queer. But to some folks who are bi, um, some folks that I know identify in the binary bi. And so non-trans, mm-hmm. right? Cis, uh, cis folk who are identify as uh, male and female or yeah or at the spectrum of such right um and then there's folks when i was coming out as queer i was like oh does queer mean that you're attracted to trans folks too and yes it's all inclusive right um and so it's technical in that way but it's also not there's folks who are like bi pan fluid pansexual and fluid Mm -hmm. who are like actually i'm attracted to everyone and i want to call myself bi pan fluid i'm also queer so the umbrella term queer you can also identify as the umbrella term by pan fluid okay right so they're interchangeable but because generationally and we're in an intersectional time Mm -hmm. intersectional intergenerational time at that yes right where folks are just learning this language yeah right even in my um generation um, depending on what region you grew up in, what communities you came out in, and all of that, um, there is a lack of language. And again, an understanding of like, bi means cis, attracted to both binary genders, right? Yeah. Which to me, I'm like, mm, well, can we break that down? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. But again, it's how everyone identifies personally, right? Yeah. Self identification. So hmm. that's why for me, I'm queer and also by pen fluid yeah no i appreciate that especially the generational piece mm. i think is really important it's something i've noticed yeah more and more of for sure so you grew up in southern california born in peru yes and i'm curious what was what was your faith like growing up growing up there um for you and within your family system mm. Well, let's see. I we moved from Lima to Southern California when I was six, and one of my fondest memories of going to church was in Lima. Actually, it was um, we went to an evangelical Christian church, and it was around. It was like in eighty seven, eighty six, nineteen eighty seven, nineteen eighty six, and there was a huge push. The evangelical church was present in Lima. They were like, we're saving souls, we're bringing it, you know, Roman Catholicism is here, yeah, but let let us show you, let us show you this new birth, right? Yeah. All that. Um, and my aunt was really, really into the, the church that she was going to, so she invited my mom, and my mom started going, and she brought my sisters and I, and I went to the youth group, or the little, the little, little kid, Uh, ministry and I loved it I loved the stories that were told about Jesus's life Uh, I love the idea of sharing information and sharing uh, sharing stories but mostly sharing hope Mm -hmm. I remember one story specifically about the love that Jesus gives and how we should love like Jesus and how 
that offers a type of of uh, something to look forward to, right? Like, I look forward to seeing you every day because I love you. It's basic, basic, like, kid ministry, right? Because yeah. I think I was five. Yeah. And what I loved about that story was I wanted to share that. And I, I thought of maybe writing, like, love notes on pieces of paper and going on rooftops and sharing that love, right? Yeah. And so I had this huge image as a little five-year-old of, like, organizing this like uh, love fest on little notes, you know, where they were like graffiti falling down to people's heads, like, and you just shared like love, but you also shared hope, right? Mm -hmm. So that was my idea of what like love was and what like hope looked like when I was a kid. Um, so that was when I was five or six though. Yeah. It changed when we moved to Southern California. Yeah. For sure. And did you remain within the evangelical church oh, in yeah. Southern California? Oh, okay. Yeah. Was that a smooth transition, or how did that how did that go? What did that become? Well, it was um, there was more denominations, yeah, in Southern California, uh, because we moved to Azusa, actually, the city of Azusa, where there was a huge revival, huge evangelical uh, Pentecost revival. So the spirit was felt back in like I think it was in the. 70s I want to say okay. but it started the churches started the Pentecostal church um, just spirit-centered churches that were predominantly immigrant communities so Latinx immigrant communities mm -hmm. and coming also from like the Midwest and parts of California that are in the desert area and so you have indigenous communities that are also part of this movement and so there was this huge influx of folks practicing evangelical spirit-based hybrid like i would say hmm. more like adding a bit of culture to it because it's not you're going to speak spanish and you're going to practice in the ways that you practice your faith right so it is infused with extra spirit which is i, I like to say that hmm. because you are you are placing forms of your own culture right which is different than uh, Protestant Calvinism, mm -hmm. right? It's a little different than your Eurocentric uh, denominations, right? Yeah. So, especially because it is in Spanish and there's a different way of expressing yourself, yeah, right? And so the change was a lot, I felt it, I felt it become a lot more, uh, I wouldn't say, embodied but i felt it become a lot more about saving once we got to the to mm. southern california it was about saving people and how dire it was how people were so lost and there was a there was just this lack of hmm. which was very different than what i heard as a little five-year-old six-year-old totally that's like that's a complete switch from this abundance of love that you're throwing off a roof a rooftop to the slack yeah yeah so it's totally a contradiction huh mm -hmm. and so now um you're worshiping within the foursquare evangelical tradition yes what um what was the path to that mm. like well my mom was basically trying to figure out what the nomination because there's so many okay and at the time um, 
I was I was in fifth grade and we had just moved to this area where there were like three families that were recent immigrants re recent immigrant families and they all had like three to four kids and at least two of the kids would be my age and we all, were all in the same elementary school and one of the families was going to Angela's Temple in Pasadena or in downtown LA and what happened was every Friday there was Bible study at this family's house and the the pastor from the church would come to our neighborhood and go to this family's house and conduct Bible study and all of the neighborhood adults would go but all the kids would stay outside and the three brothers were really good at all the athletic sports and so when they were missing we lost like mm -hmm. our little neighborhood like crew wouldn't win any of the games against the other neighborhood crews so we would be bombed and it wasn't until a few weeks of that that we were invited into the house to be a part of the bible study mm -hmm. and so when that happened we would we then invited our parents and the group just grew into a church so the pastor ended up moving to the neighborhood and we ended up opening up a church that was a four-square church. Okay. So we built the church basically. Wow. And and it was actually the kids who did it because there was a small community of adults that were getting together for Bible study. Mm. But once the kids came in, we brought our parents too because our parents were like, oh my gosh, our kids are going to Friday Bible study instead of being outside. This is miraculous, right? <laughs> and we were like, well, now you have to come <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> because we're in our faith and we want you to be there too. Peer pressure. So, totally, totally. What were your gatherings like once the kids started bringing their parents and everything? That was awesome. I mean, you got in where you fit in. Yeah. It was a tiny house. It was yeah. like a tiny little apartment complex house, right? Yeah. And the kids are in the the boys' room. We were on their beds. <laughs> and were, were you all, I mean, everyone of all ages involved in one same kind of service? Or were did you have to spread out to different rooms and oh, do different things? We had three things? different rooms, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so the, what was adults were, the adults were in the living room looking at the Bible Okay, the, doing a traditional Bible study. Exactly. Let's read this passage and answer some questions about it. Kind of yes. Thing. Okay. The okay. like nine to sixteen year olds or so, we were in the boys' rooms, and then the little itty bitty kids were around the kitchen with one of the seventeen year olds. Okay. So that's how it kind of worked huh. out, and it was a, it was hilarious because we got to the point where we couldn't fit in that room anymore, yeah. and we were outside again. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> That's what we had you a brought everyone church. inside, and yeah. you lost your spot. Yeah, <laughs> back out. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I think that that's always something I kind of fantasize about in a way when I think about church these days, because in most churches, you're talking hundreds of and hundreds of members, and it's hard to feel like you have this tight knit sense of community, and people yeah. want that, but it's almost impossible with that many people. You all, you you have to have your cliques in a yes, way. Yes, yes. And so I've always wondered what early day churches were like when it was just one apostle of sorts coming in and working with 
a few families that sat down in their house together or or yeah. in the streets together or whomever and um i imagine there's a deep sense of community with oh that. completely yeah. there's extended family who would come in from out of town and stay a while mm. and on top of that there's also a sense of really understanding where people's troubles are yeah and how exactly a community could come together to not only lend a hand but also hold space hold emotional space yeah. right and i think that that is really important i know that there was a um there's been a recent uh push to have home churches exist again mm-hmm. or maybe there's a need yeah but just to have like an intimate space where folks can share and not feel like they're amplified when they do yeah because i again when we talk about high church you get looks when you're not acting right or walking at the right time or when you have to stand up and go to the bathroom mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's a whole etiquette yeah and there's when we think about a service that that creates that kind of environment, it's a type of pantomime. Mm. There is a staged feel, mm-hmm. right? And so when I, there, I mean, when I talk about hybridity and when I talk about, uh, I guess when I, when I say like, oh, it's cultural, when I th- all these things, everything has an element of performance every single thing that we do in front of someone else absolutely right and so it just depends on how you're performing Mm -hmm. and why and so those are questions that come up for me all the time because i'm like well if i'm going to put myself in this space i know the culture around me is performing this way Mm -hmm. will i feel uncomfortable with going to the bathroom when i need to yeah (laughs) (laughs) basic yeah Yeah. basic bodily functions because i know that one of my most important values when it comes to being in a place where the divine is being exalted is my body Mm. (laughs) right Mm. yeah i mean if we can't see the divine in someone else and or in ourselves what are we doing if i'm going to suppress my bodily functions because I'm in a place of divinity, but it's not me. I don't mm-hmm. think so. Yeah. You know? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just feeling like you can't get up and move because an usher is going to tell you to sit down or it's not the right time in the liturgy. You can get up and move when the music's playing because that's less Because it's, op- it's an opera. <laughs> it's the opera <laughs> go yeah. to go at intermission okay yeah it's yeah well i think too you you reminded me of of what i wonder um musicians feel like being i i think about this here in nashville like the difference between seeing a show at the bridgestone arena where there's sixteen thousand plus people and you're right. and the performer is this tiny little dot in the middle of the room mm. versus going to a bar downtown or in one of the neighborhoods around here where it's a crowd of 30 or 40 people and how much more relaxed the musicians are how much more 
they joke around, they can read the room a lot better. There's just this, this, I, I, it, it feels like it's less of a performance yeah. and more authentic. And you're right. There's still some performance element. There's still some like being on some posturing, whatever, but like there's this intimacy that I, that you get when it's a small venue like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's this, it's bizarre to think of it in this way too, but there's, it's kind of where inclusivity and exclusivity come together. Because you know that there are folks who are not present and taking in the story, and you're like, I feel lucky. I feel grateful. I feel so blessed to be able to take this in in mm. the small community, right? And yet you're also like, but anyone can walk in here, actually, mm-hmm. right? So there is this mix of like inclusive, exclusive that happen yeah. in those moments, which I think is what I know I strive for and community and ministry yeah which is one to me yeah right Mm, absolutely so where did your faith take you next what was what was the next step was this after you graduated high school or um college i was already challenging notions so i had already asked all the big questions come Mm. freshman year in high school big questions of faith or big questions of sexuality or both Big questions of faith first, okay. because okay. in my honors history class, our Jewish professor, or I always call her professor because she was very much like a professor and rigid in academically, mm. right? She pushed us hard. So my teacher, <laughs> she took us to six different uh, places of worship uh, from six different religious uh, practices. Okay. And so we were in downtown LA at a Buddhist temple. We went to um, we went to a Orthodox Catholic church that was Russian. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went to a Jewish temple. We went to uh, a synagogue which is a Jewish temple, I think, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I said it twice. <laughs> All right. So getting that twice. <laughs> okay. Yes. Well, we went to six different places, okay. I should say. But we went to all these places, and I came back with knowing that the theology I was listening to every Sunday, every Friday, and sometimes Thursdays was one path theology. And so there's only one path and it's Christianity. And listening to that for so long, I always questioned it because I was like, what about Buddhist monks? What about all these religious leaders and other religion, religious traditions? Like, where are they? Where do they go? What about indigenous medicine people? Mm -hmm. They're they're bad because they don't believe in Jesus, which was a giant question. And so coming from that trip, I was, I was everybody's nightmare in that church because I asked all of those questions to my, I asked my pastor straight up and down. I said, what does this mean? Because I, I can't judge them as a Christian. I can't walk into their spaces and tell them that they're bad because they don't, they don't posture to Jesus. You know, mm-hmm. like I can't do that. 
that's unchristian of me <laughs> right and so he looked at me as though i just was the devil <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know what to do with me he didn't he, say like oh you should just like maybe go to a different church or... he was like I don't know who exposed you to this and you just have to read the bible more okay yeah he took it to biblical <laughs> so what did you do I stopped going okay. I protested enough Sundays that my mom had to had to just listen to me because I was pouty I didn't want to go and so I resisted hard yeah and by by my sophomore year I was gone away from the church all my friends were still going I was just like there's no way this makes no sense and this is coming from a kid who prayed on their knees every night yeah like made like allowed for my mom's faith to grow because she saw the way that I was growing in my faith and so in that sense i've always been a practicing uh religious person yeah right and yet i i just could not accept that first of all there was no answer to accept and second of all i saw the divine in everyone that i met that day and every day thereafter But I always have felt that way about people. Yeah. And so if it's not going to be that, then I that's not a part of my faith. And I realized that the, that church that I helped build was not a part of my faith anymore. It mm-hmm. couldn't it couldn't be a part of my faith. I got that answer. Yeah. And so yeah, that's why I stopped going sophomore year. That's not to say that I wasn't a part of the community. I was still a part of that ministry. Uh, I still was a, a part of the people's lives that um, that helped build the church. A lot of my friends were still going. And what happened when I got into San Francisco State University cool. for college, I didn't end up going because I went to New York instead. Uh-huh. Hmm. In New York, I did not find a home church at all whatsoever, and I wasn't uh-huh. looking. Honestly, I found church in the LGBTQI community and specifically okay. in the trans and non-binary, uh, gender non-conforming community. Okay. And the way that that happened was very interesting because I had just come out as trans uh, about two, three years after I moved out to New York. Okay. I just found a community of folks and I started organizing with Trans Justice and the Audrey Lord Project. Right, yeah. And there was a big march happening. It was like the first ever trans and gender nonconforming people of color march. And it was about organizing around economic justice and social justice, racial justice. It was it was all the things that I was like, wait a minute, this is what my ministry has totally. been like, but I didn't have those words. I was just like, I know how to organize. So I was like, let me join, let me be part of this community. And I kid you not, going to the meetings, going to the two hour meetings on Wednesday nights, putting out the chairs, then afterwards putting away the chairs, helping clean the food, just being a part of that service, mm-hmm. I felt like I was at church. Yeah, It brought me back to those Fridays 
at my friend's house. It brought me back to those basement church days of having your youth group get together and then helping clean, right? And so I had these moments where during organizing meetings, I was in church yeah. and it, there was nothing different about it at all other than we all had a voice and we all were trying to incite hope in each other and in our movement. And in many ways for me that those were the moments where I felt like we were one body. Yeah. And that's what was missing from my church experience when I became a young adult mm. because it wasn't about body. It wasn't about creating a general sense of connectivity. It was a complete opposite. So yeah. scared. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so allowing for a love of the body, especially for trans and gender nonconforming folks of color at that, where you're negated and demonized for being trans and on top of that for being a brown person or an immigrant person or black person, all these layers compounded on top of each other. Um, to be in a space where we're affirming each other and we're recognizing the divine within each other without using those words, but knowing that we each come from varied religious backgrounds, right? And where the director of the org is actually a trans man who's the son of a preacher. So there is spirit incited mm -hmm. in, our, in our group. Yeah. Merely, I mean, because of who was in that group. My mom is also a Foursquare minister. And so the ways that we talked, our intonations, the way that our spirit would take over when we had something to talk about, yeah. right? That was church to me. Mm. Mm -hmm. mm. How big was that group? We were 30 strong. Okay. So yeah. kind of like a home church again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 30 strong, trans women, trans men, and, and gender nonconforming, non-binary folk. Yeah, all people of color. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so uh, you started to talk a little bit about um, about embodiment, mm -hmm. and um, and and I'm wondering, kind of, was that? I know that embodied theology is part of some of your work now. Yeah. Um, is that kind of where that seed was planted for you? Is that where you found that language? Yes and no. Okay. <laughs> what happened during that time was I recognized my need for community. Yeah. And beyond that, I recognized my need for hope. Yeah. Not in the sense of having people talk about the future in that way, which was a lot of what like the theology the eschatological theology that I used to have to listen to in my Foursquare church is very much like hope is in the future and it's when Jesus comes again, mm -hmm. right? Which yeah. is not the eschaton. It's what we made the eschaton to be. It's very one dimensional, yeah. right? And so when I think about embodiment and how that came to play in my life, it the spark of hope happened within that community. The embodiment, I was affirmed 
in my embodiment in that community and that gave me hope mm. where i knew that i needed challenge was in being around religious people because that was a very secular space yeah and yet it was very spiritual to those who recognized what a religious space is it was spiritual i should say because there are folks mm -hmm. who are like no way that was there's there's no god and this is purely our work right within that group itself and then there's people who screamed hallelujah every chance they got right and so yeah. it was very mixed yeah that's why i'm like careful to be like well i did i found it but i'm not sure everybody else did sure that's, right it's yeah. a very secular space yeah um so for me yes it incited this um this understanding of embodiment <clears throat> where i was okay i was like more than okay i felt like i was a part of something that was divine but i didn't understand that i could be there i had to find a practice that accepted all of the expressions that i hold mm -hmm. which was not christianity yeah and the way that that happened was through an ex-partner of mine who was in santeria and i coming from the christian tradition santeria is the devil mm. it is it is possession, it is animal killings, it's it's all kinds of negative, negative things, right? Uh -huh. And when you compare it to something like Orthodox Judaism, right? There, there's the same stuff happening. There's chickens that are killed at a certain time of the year. Mm -hmm. There's... Uh, there's even garments that are worn that aesthetically they're ritual aesthetics, right? They mm -hmm. share. Okay. So you're looking at two ancient traditions yeah. that share aesthetics. They share uh, ritual sacrifice. And yet one is demonized and the other is a part of society. Is in question. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, again, if you look at the racial, ethno uh, demographic of an African diasporic religious tradition and a different diaspora at that, right, which is uh, the Jewish diaspora, mm -hmm. um, there is a difference with who gets demonized in which ways. Not the, both have been. Yeah big time I'm not negating one or the other they're both negated they're both demonized and one isn't talked about when it's completely mm -hmm. erased right and so it took me a long time to figure that out for myself hmm. to understand that like my partner's not a devil worshiper yeah. because I grew up Christian and yeah. she's a devil worshiper goodness she's a Santera priest like no yeah. And so when I understood her to not have all these negative uh, stereotypes attached to her that I grew up knowing and praying against, I understood that the practice itself 
is one that includes dance, includes your body, includes your connection to all the elements in the earth and calls them divine. And not only calls them divine, they're a, they're a deity, they're a god. The soil is a god. The ocean is a god. The volcano is a god. The lava is a god. Every element in nature is a god. And our connection to the God, we can, we can sacrifice, meaning we can make a meal for lava. We can make a meal at the edge of a volcano and ask for something that you need, mm. right? And there's a relationship that we're disconnected from, from the earth that we hold as beings as creation. And that to me spoke volumes as to the connection I feel with people. Mm-hmm let alone with the earth mm -hmm. right and yeah. so i was like that right there is something i have not been allowed to know is that connection yeah. and so that's what drew me to the practice was the fact that it not only allowed me to be a part of a physical body of people but a part of the physical body of the earth so that in itself i was like wait a minute like it's bigger than just us who talk to each other i know the ocean talks to me yeah. the ocean's been talking to me since i was a little kid mm. right and so understanding that aspect of spirituality that it does it it includes the earth yeah. was so important and what drew me in yeah and so and, and it sounds like you learned all of that through relationship through another mm -hmm. kind of opening that up um, yeah which i think is really something i can relate to um yeah because my, my my boyfriend's atheist and so it's it's uh when he told me that on like our third date i was like wow. oh okay and my heart just spoke it's the truth that it had always felt which is a lot of what you've been saying it's just yeah. like oh wait well I've never thought that atheists go to hell like I don't think that's like a I don't really think that's a thing I I, I don't right. see the need to discriminate like that just because of um, the way you practice your faith or don't and um, right definitely yeah. the challenge is your own faith or your own we all judge I think that that's the false, um, I guess the false social, uh, an, a false social assumption is that we don't judge people. Mm -hmm. We do all day long. We judge people for not wearing a raincoat in the rain. <laughs> like that's how we judge people. Yeah. I mean, you observe things and you yeah. think things about what you're observing. Exactly. And yeah. that comes with judgment. It's called shade. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And and along those lines, we do what we hear, we believe, especially in a place of worship, mm -hmm. especially when you're open and you trust people mm -hmm. and you're young and you're being formed. You're, you're being, you're in a formative community. Yeah. Those things stick. Mm -hmm. I mean, I still hold the pillars of my Christianity firm. Yeah. 
the values that I have, I hold are from those pillars. And yet I trouble them and I challenge them every day. Yeah, absolutely. They become part of your identity Mm -hmm. for sure. I was thinking about this even just with like music again, (laughs) but like, you know, music you listen to as a child sticks with you. I mean, and, and you hear it. I was, in, cooking in the kitchen last night and a Michael Bublé album came on from 2007 <laughs> and I know every word to yes. that album and I and it just poured out of me as I was just doing the dishes and I'm like I have not listened to this in a very long time and exactly. I know every single word and and yeah I mean these yeah I, I think it's the same with our education but also our faith and, yeah. and these are things whether or not you still you know may, maybe now I hate Michael Bublé but like, and I don't. <laughs> Maybe. But, <laughs> but it doesn't mean it's not part of what formed me in a way. This, yeah. you know, this faith that I grew up in, it's mm-hmm. still part of the lens that I'm kind of viewing things through and yeah. maybe making judgments off of or not. But Exactly. And yeah. I, you bring up a really great point, which is something that I, I write about, I talk about, and I'm totally about is embodied memory, right? And how it works generationally. And when I when I write about dance and religious diasporic religious dance, and what I, what I understand is a divine expression that connects generations to each other, it is this repressed trauma that is released through movements that are calling out different deities and energy. And through that release is where you find connectivity to power and to affirmation of self, right? And so even in listening to Michael Bublé, right? (laughs) There is a sense of ownership over the knowledge of that time, of you in that time, really. Yeah. Right? There's this sense of memory and the sense of affirmation. So the same with dance, except there's a lot more tied to it depending on the identity. Yeah. So I'm curious, talking about dance and this this embodied memory. Yeah. What, um, does that resonate with you and your culture? And if so, how? Yes, it's it's a it's such a compounded answer. Like it's layered, and there's so much history to it. Sure. And I only say this because my research right now is based in a small desert area that's a coastal town in Peru a right. two no yeah just about two and a half hours when you drive south of Lima is a small Afro-Peruvian town it's called it Godman and it's basically where the Afro-Peruvian community is known for their dances okay. and it's an eight by eight town it's tiny and there's a giant church the church is like the biggest thing of the town hmm. the most like what offers the resources to the town, really? There's no ATMs, no post office, nothing that we understand a town to hold, except for the church. Yeah. 
Is this where you were born or how were you connected with this town? I'm connected to this town through understanding, proving culture okay. as an immigrant. Yeah. Okay. And so as an immigrant growing up in Southern California, the music I heard was Afro-Peruvian music. Mm. Okay. That was Musica Criolla, right? My connection to my ancestral line, when I think of my mom's side of the family, they're Italian. When I think of my dad's side of the family, there's all kinds of mixes. Mm. There, my last name is Polish. I also know that there's an Afro-Peruvian person in my lineage. Mm. And so we are mixed, mixed, mixed. Yeah. And the way that that shows up in Peruvian culture is it's criollo, it's Creole. Mm. We're all mixed. And therefore, when I think about my culture, my culture is criollo. I, I understand myself to be mixed, both Latinx and European. No matter what anyone says, I'm like Latinx. That means European and all these other identities, yeah. right? Um, and relating it back to dance, when I had the opportunity to think about what I wanted to express in my thesis or in a project that centered religion, theology, embodiment, which is what I know uh, spirituality to be, I decided to go to what makes me cry, what what really impacts me emotionally, yeah. which is Afro-Peruvian music, the drumming, the the dancing. There's something that just pulls me, and I don't know if it is generally generational memory for me, but there's something that calls me, yeah. and. I needed to look at that and, and understand it and understand it, but also allow others to see it as a form of religion. Because it is to me, yeah. uh, it's an expression of, it's a theological expression. Yeah. Mm. And one of resilience at that, when I think of the ways that uh, Afro Latinx communities are erased from Latin America, um, when I think of even the Peruvian, the Afro-Peruvian community, it's been 72 years that there hasn't been an, a section in the census that says African descendant or even African or black. Mm. And so there is no mention of being a person that is tied to being black mm. or being Afro-Peruvian yeah. or being anything that identifies you as a person of color yeah. you're just Peruvian there's a nationalist identity that people hold on to and it is called criollo hmm. but when you do that you're erasing racism hmm. you're not acknowledging the fact that people are over and above others yeah. that there is oppression and it's systemic yeah and so that's the huge social lie, mm -hmm. right? And so being a person who's in justice communities, knowing that part of the history and knowing how I'm impacted by, by the resilience of this community, 
and how in many ways they are the performative aspect of the proving culture at that mm -hmm. again being used mm. right mm -hmm. that's all of that brings tears when i listen to that music yeah and so for me it was about centering that resilience so what is what's your spiritual practice like today and how is it informed by Peru? Mm. Well, it's very much informed by Peru when it comes to ancestral veneration. Because I know when it comes to the ancestors, every Monday, I set up my week, I clean my altar. At my altar are my guardian angels, my ancestors, meaning like my great grandmas, my anyone that I know who's been a big part of my life who I am aware that walks with me yeah. is at my altar with the picture and with something that I offer to them. Okay. You know, like my grandma loves sweets, so she gets a little cookie every now and again. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Yeah. And and so that's what I do on Mondays. I replenish my altar and I clean and I I talk to who I need to talk to. I light my candles, I say my prayers, and I begin my week. Whatever challenges I have, I talk to them about. And I ask for guidance because my intuition is them. Again, when it comes to embodied memory, I'm a part of many people. And if I'm not in touch with them, then I can't listen to what my gut, quote unquote, is saying. Yeah. That to me, spirituality is is your intuition, is mm -hmm. being in touch with it, is knowing where it comes from, is knowing who's talking to you. It's knowing, knowing who and what to give to and when and how. Like no one knows my grandmother, yeah. like I do. Yeah. And I believe at this point, I'm basically the only person that has a picture of her and like lights a candle and gives her anything, yeah. right? And so when we think about it, she gave me so much. She, I, she's gonna give my kids many things as well. Yeah. And I hope to do that for others too. I hope to do that for my great grandkids, yeah. right? And so that's ancestral veneration to me, mm. is knowing that you come from somewhere and your intuition is guided by that person, mm -hmm. that energy. Yeah, I love that. I think, I mean, putting a definition on spirituality is so difficult. A word I keep going back to is is mm -hmm. connection, and I yeah. so often ground that in, in just connection to the people around me in this present moment. Yeah. But you bring you bring up this depth of the connection to our past mm -hmm. that um, that in is, our present. Yeah. Yeah. And but, in our future. Yeah. Because I'm talking about going to going through my week with them. Mm. Yeah. Acknowledging them on your Monday mm -hmm. so that you remember to acknowledge them throughout your week, knowing that they're accompanying you. Mm -hmm. And even what you just said about great grandchildren that like you want, you know, I mean, you're inheriting part of their spirit mm -hmm. that you're going to pass on someday. 
or, and that you pass on now to all the other people that you're around too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That, that in so many ways is like what I understand to be hope. Mm. Right. And if I were to have that definition, if I were to have had that definition as a kid, like I think I work towards that definition as someone who found practice in spirituality mm-hmm. and I didn't have the definitions I didn't have let's say uh, the structure or the framework but I was guided to it yeah I deeply feel that way I deeply feel like I was guided there yeah yeah so when you look back on five-year-old Damien bringing up hope again mm-hmm. what is um yeah what does that what does that look like for you today day to day spiritual practice or just in your in your work well i still organize i still do a lot of community work uh i mean it's so funny because at different points in my life it's looked so different right like organizing marches and being out there in the world and spreading the news spreading love in various ways uh and today it is about you know i run affinity groups i'm involved in a lot of different forms of community yeah and it is connectivity and it's also there's this when you talk to someone and you're able to be present I think that that to me is showing that hope that love Mm. because I couldn't have been I was there was no way of not being present as a child I was present, live, and direct. Yeah, and not weighed down by the the culture or the worries of the world and all that that comes with. Absolutely. I was ready to receive. Yeah, yeah. I was ready to receive. I was ready to take it on and then move on and give to others. Yeah. Right? And so when I think of my five-year-old self, I try to make that five-year-old proud by continuing to have that openness when I meet anyone is bringing presence not a not a presence of above and over but one that actually sees the person who's looking back at me Mm -hmm. that's the most important thing Mm. and what's your community like today oh such a mixed bag (laughs) That's fine. I love it. <laughs> it's everyone. Um, very queer, very trans, a lot of religious leaders, a lot of secular folk. Um, what do you mean when you say secular folk? Oh, like, don't talk to me about religion. Okay. Yeah, secular isn't like anarchist, okay. radical, uh, uh, yeah, just non just don't ascribe to any form of religion okay. or spirituality okay. or just humanists right yeah and yeah i i have been in queer community for a long time 
I think almost 18 years. And that has been a part of my community, totally. that the humanist aspect of, of understanding why we're here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And not using words like faith, <laughs> religion, <laughs> because they're just a trigger words for a lot of folk. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I feel like it is about having a sensitivity to language with having such a diverse community that I have, that I hold, that I'm a part of. Um, because I still talk to a lot of folks from like my years in New York, growing up in California, and now in Nashville. Yeah. And in Vancouver where I went to film school and in Peru, my family. Yeah. And so there's a there's a diversity there. Absolutely. <laughs> and speaking and listening to folks it takes a lot to translate and to understand what words actually impact people differently mm -hmm. right and when we t when i talk about religion i don't it it's it's coded a lot of the time mm -hmm. definitely in queer community i don't use a lot of the religious words not even faith faith is a bad word sometimes yeah what, what do you use instead of faith um what works believe okay what do you hope yeah hope and believe what do you believe uh what do you believe to be uh hopeful like what what gives you hope and what do you believe what do you believe in is like if you believe in yourself and your actions and what you put forward mm -hmm. does that mean community as well hmm. right yeah. like who holds you up that's what I go to is relationality. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because you can, you don't do anything alone. Nothing is done alone. Not in this world. Unless you're in academia, then you're in then the basement of the library. So not even that. that. You're you're with the people's books. <laughs> That's true. You're with them. You're surrounded books. by you're the surrounded. products and yes. the creativity of so many other people. Exactly. And yeah. if you don't give them credit, oof, they'll find you. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's a beautiful point <laughs> that you really are never alone you're never alone yeah. uh exactly that's great a big thanks to damien for coming on the show today you can find him on instagram at damien pascal and like always you can find that link in the show notes as well as information about the religious traditions spiritual practices and theological terms mentioned throughout this episode out loud is recorded in nashville tennessee and is hosted and edited by me greg thompson you can learn more about the show at OutLoudStories.com and on Facebook and Instagram at OutLoudStories. And you can help support the show by contributing monthly to our Patreon page, which gets you exclusive access to unedited episodes of the show. Just visit Patreon.com OutLoudStories. On our next episode, our season finale, we will hear from Emily Joy. Please share the show with someone as a way to start a conversation. Thank you for listening. Go in peace.